Welcome to Commentaries on Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. Today, we're going to be discussing concepts of consciousness as involving measurement omission. Stay tuned. All right, so we are in chapter three of OPAR on concept formation, and now we're talking about concepts of consciousness. So quick summary of what Leonard covers. We start off with a discussion about how we learned about how we form first level concepts, concepts of entities, and we've also discussed uh, relatively low level ones like entities attributes. And now we're turning to the point that uh, you can form wider, narrow concepts, concepts that are further from the perceptual level, which in objectivism we call abstractions from abstractions. And then the focus of this chapter is on one particular kind of abstraction from abstraction, concepts of consciousness. And Leonard goes into exactly in which way they too are formed through differentiation, measurement omission, and integration. And we end with uh, several kinds of examples, and that's about it. We go after that right into the issue of definitions. So one question you might have is why this section? And it is interesting that instead of getting a section on abstractions from abstractions, we go directly, which is a whole chapter in Ayn Rand's book, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, we go right into concepts of consciousness. And I think part of the context here, and Leonard reminds us several times, is that he's assuming that, you're, that you've read Ayn Rand's full treatment of this in Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. And what he's trying to do is indicate the process. So we get a lot of time in the core process in terms of how we form first level concepts, and then just an indication of how we do it, an indication of how this applies to more abstract concepts. And I think the reason to focus on concepts of consciousness is that this is in many ways the least obvious application of how measurement omission applies. And as Leonard indicates, concepts of consciousness are also central to philosophy. So I think that's really what we're doing in this section is just getting a real chewing of the objectivist theory of measurement omission and its application to a non-obvious case. So for objectivism, a conceptual level starts with entities. The first concepts we form are concepts of entities, the objects that we can actually perceive. And at that level, you can't make a mistake. You either observe a similarity or you don't. But as we go more abstract, more distant from the perceptual level, either by going wider or by going narrower, we are moving further away from the perceptual level and there we can make a mistake. And in fact, in the introduction of the first part of the chapter, Abstractions from Abstractions in Ayn Rand's book, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, which I assume everybody knows we just refer to as ITOE, um, she starts out by talking about the different ways that people can, that, uh, can take over words and concepts and learn them from others. And you know, she points out that for some people, uh, too few, they the way that they actually um, learn words is by basically doing the same process that they do at the first level. They they conceptualize them. They discover the actual reference and reality of a concept by retracing the steps by which the first person came to form that higher level concept. But not everybody does this. The fact that we can learn concepts from others opens up 
uh, two other and then ultimately three other possibilities. Um, so the second is that you can sort of half form a concept. And this is what Ayn Rand refers to as holding words as approximations. It's, I kind of sort of know what I mean. The second is that you can take over words in, as imitation. And so it's, well, this is what I see, how people using these words, and I kind of, the reference for them in effect are the emotional vibrations I get from people when I recite these formulas. And then the, the fourth category, if you will, is just that sometimes you do one, sometimes you do the other, sometimes you do the other. It's just a mixture. And, and so because we can misform concepts or can't form, or can you, let's put it this way, since we can use words and take them over without fully understanding them, it's important when you're thinking about, okay, well, how do we form abstractions from abstractions that your model not be, well, however people happen to uh, learn words. It has to be what actually constitutes conceptualizing and recognizing that not everybody does it. So you can't do it through a sociological experiment. You have to actually look at what would be required to form this from reality for the first time. And that's going to be both what we need to have as our kind of uh, standard for um, the theory, but then also it's going to be vital for practice. That is, if we actually want to ha be able to harness the power of concepts we have to go through the process even though that it can be made much faster when somebody has already formed the concept and in effect can give us a much quicker uh, path to gaining that concept ourselves so what is it we actually do when we're forming abstractions from abstractions and I mean, there's basically three things. We can widen, we can narrow, and we can cross-classify. And so, it, you know, the a kind of easy way to visualize it is if you remember, we have kind of uh, the idea of an axis, the CCD, along which we're measuring things. And if you remember, there was the idea of all that we're doing when we're differentiating is seeing that there's a, you know, range of measurements where things are different swamped by an even bigger difference and so you imagine the x-axis and in effect when you see things as similar it's oh they fall within this part of the range of that x-axis and so when we widen all we're doing is widening on the x-axis we're staying in the same axis of measurement the same ccd but we're widening so this might have been the man shape range and then we you know widen to animal and eventually we can widen to living being or living organism uh, and then ultimately to entity <clears throat> then you can think of narrowing right and uh, there you're just shrinking the range the old distinguishing characteristic uh, let's use the adult example rationality uh, for man now becomes the CCD becomes the conceptual common denominator. So now we're going to be subdividing within this range. And then cross classifications are if you just think, well, we add an axis, or you can add several axes uh, because you can cross classify by more than one feature at a time. And that would be something like, um, all right, so this is, you know, the axis that is uh, for. Um, range of consciousness and locomotion so for living creatures we have man right here now we're going to add another axis that would be something like um you know uh country of origin 
And so we're still talking about man, we're still talking about a rational animal, but we're bringing in uh, country of origin as an access, as an access, and we're seeing then, okay, this is, you know, man from France, it's a Frenchman, American, man from America. And that's really all there is to it. Obviously, there's a lot more you can say about this, but I think for our purposes, just getting that it's the same process, uh, the same essential process that is going on, and you're just basically widening, narrowing, or adding more axes, but there's no kind of like magical uh, extra step. It, it's the same core idea, and we'll talk more about how it applies when we get into concepts of consciousness explicitly. So one more thing before we get to concepts of consciousness, and this is something that kind of baffled me uh, oh, a few years back, and um, once once I got the answer, I mean, it was very straightforward, but maybe it bothers some of you, which is that similarity on the on for our first level concepts, we just perceive. So how, how do we grasp, we just see it, right? Like you just see two men is similar as against a dog or a cat. And so the question is, well, how do we get similarity on the conceptual level? And in effect, we kind of talked about this last time when I said that, you know, similarity is given on the perceptual level for first level concepts. Um, but sameness isn't. Sameness, the fact that we're gonna treat things falling under a concept as identical, where do we get that? We could only get it conceptually. You could only get it by seeing things fall in a, a specific range. And it's actually just the same process when we're on the conceptual level. It's that what we're doing is that we're seeing that basically two phenomena fall under the same concept, that they, are, that they differ only in their measurements. So an example that uh, Leonard Peikoff gives in the appendix to Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, at least uh, it, it's Professor E, but it has since been, I think online, you can find a list of who all the professors are. Um, but uh, you can always tell Leonard because he's the one who's grasping the theory in rich detail and often explaining it uh, to people. But he anyway, he gives the example of grasping the similarity between Kant and Descartes, right, is that they're both primacy of consciousness. They fall, they're identical and falling under the same phenomena, but and the differences are only difference in measurement. So, you know, Descartes is kind of apologetic for his primacy of consciousness. Kant is kind of brazen and all in on it. And Descartes exempt certain parts of his philosophy from privacy uh, primacy of consciousness for Kant, it's all encompassing it's fully consistent so you see that it's just the same phenomenon in this in the same range but with different measurements and so that's it's all that we're doing when we're um, talking about conceptual level similarities is we're saying yeah these things um, fall in the same range it's the same characteristic in a uh, different degree so if you look at how Ayn Rand starts out her chapter on concepts of consciousness, she starts out by just talking about the nature of consciousness. And two points she makes is that consciousness is an active process. It is activity. It is differentiation and integration. On the perceptual level, it's all automatic. And on the conceptual level, it's volitional, but it's still the same. Consciousness is 
activity. And consciousness is awareness. And so ultimately, all of its material, including indirect, uh, comes from reality, comes from external reality, and even things that don't come directly from external reality, the material for it, whether it's imagination or dreaming, uh, all of it comes indirectly and ultimately from reality. And so what she says is that for consciousness, for when we get to concepts of consciousness, every state of consciousness has a has both content and action. And so this is forming the CCD of all concepts of consciousness, that all concepts of consciousness that we're going to form have the same CCD, and it's just action and content of consciousness. So then what are the steps in forming at least our first concepts of consciousness? Well, the first is that we're going to isolate certain actions of consciousness and set and separate them set aside their content just focus in on the action and then we we observe differences in those actions and she leads through the way that you know there's a difference between perceiving feeling thinking remembering imagining and that what we're going to do is we observe similarities with those actions that the actions that say are going to come under the concept feeling are the same how do they differ what are the measurements that we're going to emit well we're going to emit their content and we're going to emit their intensity so how what how can we emit the content um because and that one threw me right like in what sense is content measurable like it that doesn't seem measurable but her point is that it's measurable in exactly the same way that it's measurable when you're forming um, concepts of entities and attributes things in external reality in the same way that they are measurable so they're measurable as content of consciousness and so we can omit them as omitted measurements and then with intensity it's the same point of um I mean, if you want to give an existential example, it's, you know, intensity is like the feeling of different weights. And I don't mean like numerically the number on a weight, but just that feeling of holding five pounds versus holding 50 pounds, that there's always an intensity of any act of uh, consciousness. And that's being omitted so that we're just grasping that phenomenon. Oh, this is what I mean by thinking, which Leonard gives a whole example of how you would form that. This is an example. This is uh, the pheno- this is the action of feeling. This is the action of remembering. And I'm, I'm, I'm not focused on the specific content of what I'm thinking or feeling or remembering. And I'm not focused on the specific intensities. Those are some but any quantities. And it's the same activity then uh, with uh, different measurements. Now, let me point out something that I found confusing. Actually, I found uh, confusing until I prepared for this video um, but it was actually it, i mean it's it's not that difficult uh, but i got thrown by this idea of all right we started out with content and action of consciousness and now we're talking about um, content and intensity and how do those two things relate and the basic point is that um, content and action are the ccd it's the conceptual common denominator of all different phenomena of um uh of consciousness and that when we're talking about content and intensity we're saying okay well we're focusing on the action of con of um of consciousness and we're omitting the content and bringing in a new aspect intensity 
So basically the only point that I'm making here, and if this didn't confuse you in the first place, maybe what I'm saying is now, so you can just ignore this, but I was trying to see, okay, is there a one-to-one -one relationship between content and action and then content and intensity where action and intensity were somehow uniquely related? And that's not what's going on. What's going on is that we have a CCD of content and action of consciousness. And if we're focused on trying to conceptualize, here's an action of consciousness. Um, we're omitting the content and we're also omitting that that every action varies in intensity so it's a new it's a new perspective on action um, that uh, w that that she's bringing in and saying these are omitted measurements so I just don't want anybody to make the the same error if they were baffled by that if you're baffled by this like I said uh, pretend you didn't hear me say a thing which leads me to the next point I want to talk about which is this stuff is hard. Like I've been studying it for God. Let's see. I discovered objectivism around the age of 15 and I'm 38 now. So, I mean, you can do the math. Like it's been uh, more than two decades and I still find this stuff tricky. In fact, I'll give you an example. I wanted to concretize this with my own example of forming a concept of consciousness. And so I thought, well, I don't just want to do, you know, the same one that Leonard did. So let's do feeling, you know, he did thinking, let's do feeling. And I thought, well, is this the kind of first concept that you would form? Um, would you form feeling and then you would form specific feelings like anger, sadness, joy? And I thought, no, it'd probably be you'd get some specific emotions, not all of them, obviously, but at least the kind of major ones. And so I thought, okay, well, let me let me do anger. And so I thought of a you know few examples of anger, right? Like it's my sister takes my toy, what a kid would get. I mean, hopefully this is not an adult forming the concept of anger. Um, but so I was trying to think of the examples that they would run into. Uh, you know, a teacher saying recess is canceled, a bully punching me. And then we, you know, differentiate those from, well, what are we differenti differentiating them from? And my first thought had been, um, okay, well, I'm differentiating that from thinking. And that, well, no, that doesn't seem right. It seems like you would differentiate from other emotional states. And so then it would be, um, I guess you'd, you know, differentiate it from the kind of feeling you'd have when your, you know, sister gives you a hug or your parents let you stay up later or something like that. So it would be roughly something like how I feel when people are nice versus how I would feel when people are mean. And so then, you know, the, you omit the content of different ways that people would be, you know, nice in different ways. I'm sorry, different ways that people would be mean. And then you'd omit the intensity. And I thought, well, wait, do you really omit the intensity? Because, you know, anger, at least as an adult, is you, like you're, you're, is a inherently and most definitions will have, like it's a, it's a major intense sort of feeling. Um, and, and so you even see that in my examples, right? Like there's kind of a range there, but in a certain way, not really. Like there's, you know, the kind of feeling you get when your sister steals something and the kind of feeling you get when a bully uh, uh, punches you, um, that doesn't have the same sort of anything like the same sort of range of like, if you think about the examples Leonard gave on uh, of problem solving where you have, you know, a really kind of difficult math problem. And I forget the other one he gave, but it was just a, you know, like a, m a much simpler scale. Like it would basically be, you know, how do I plug in my game player to the wall, something like that. Um, 
And so it seems, all right, well, this is, uh, it seems that the range is part of anger. And, you know, from an adult perspective, it's because we're just, we'll have other concepts for what you might think of as like mild anger, like annoyance, or even more major anger, like enraged. And so are those subdivisions of anger uh, or, or not? So you can see there's already just a lot of questions that I'm having trying to go through this example. Okay, integration. So when I f say, okay, I'm isolating, you know, this group of feeling angry as against feeling sad or happy, uh, what, in what sense am I doing it? What does the integration actually consist of? It's something like, I'll use the concept of anger to refer to the state of feeling. Um, it, it, I couldn't quite capture what is the sort of act of integration. I guess, you know, as an adult, you would have something like uh, when I encounter an injustice. And then the question was, well, does the kid have to have in some sense the cause of the emotion identified? And... It, it, or is it just the kind of raw feeling of it that he could put into it? And then, um, I mean, I guess, you know, I pointed out he would have some sense of anger is an emotion I have when people are mean versus nice. So in, in that sense, he would be getting the injustice of it. But um, but I'm still not 100% clear. Is, is it that that's sort of the explicit or implicit way in which he's integrating anger? And so, the, I mean, the bottom line is, um, I think what we can get is the way in which informing concepts of consciousness, we are uh, seeing them as falling under the CCD of um, the content and actions of consciousness, that we're omitting the content and we're omitting the um, intensity. I think that's pretty clear. But in terms of actually working through examples and everything, I think it can get really super tricky. But like I said, I, I don't want that to be too discouraging because as long as you have the core idea of concept uh, formation involves differentiation, measurement omission, integration, and as we'll see, uh, definition, you'll have kind of the basic landscape. And if you can understand, at least get a sense of the way in which we're omitting measurements, um, then I think you have a base from which to grow in and you can spend, you know, more time thinking through these difficult issues. And, uh, you know, I encouraged people in the last video to try to go through and figure out, well, how would you form different concepts of reality? And I want to kind of triple underline that now and say that you know if you find yourself confused or something like that's not a failure that means you're really trying to work through and understand the theory and it should raise in your mind some really good questions that will help you clarify the theory because i think what often happens is that we think yeah i get this and then we try to actually engage with it ourselves rather than work through examples that somebody else has worked out for us and it says oh wait this is this is a lot harder to apply and sometimes it's i don't understand the theory sometimes the concept itself uh is very challenging to figure out well how would you actually get it from reality so my point is not that if you can't automatically and easily do this with every concept you don't get the theory my point is that you might not get the theory and it's a great 
opportunity to learn more about the objectivist theory of concepts or you the word itself the concept itself is very tricky to figure out because typically because it's so abstract um, how you would get it from reality and that's an opportunity to learn more if that concept's important about uh, what it's what its uh, real meaning is and so along those lines I definitely want to encourage everybody if you haven't read introduction to objectivist epistemology I really highly recommend doing that and not just thinking, okay, I've got it all from OPAR. OPAR is explicit that this is basically to summarize something that Ayn Rand has treated in length. I mean, I think, you know, that what we're covering in this section from Leonard in five pages takes Ayn Rand 20 pages, and that's not including an extra, I think, 26 pages of the same material in the appendix. So the, there's a lot of condensation here, and in particular, you get her working through a lot of examples. And I'm gonna go into one in a second, um, just so that we can kind of see it if you haven't read ITOE in a long time uh, or ever, um, but I just highly encourage it. The other thing that I will encourage you to do is Harry Binswanger has a book called uh, How We Know. And I think th this it goes far beyond the objectivist theory of concepts and it has a lot of ideas that are original to Harry. So it's not like, you know, just repeating what's in Ayn Rand, but I find it to be the most accessible treatment of the objectivist theory of concepts, also his courses. Um, some of them are online for free on YouTube or on the Ayn Rand Institute campus. And um, he also has some older ones that I think were really, for me, the most clarifying things I had ever heard on concept formation, specifically, um, Con, uh, consciousness as identification and abstractions from abstractions. And I just remember, like I had spent virtually uh, nine months to a year in my late teens or early 20s just carrying around ITOE and reading it all the time and thought, okay, I think I have a handle on this. And then once I heard consciousness as identification, I realized, oh my God, I had no clue. And um, so th those are all highly recommended. And, but I think the, the kind of um, most like, you know, written out treatment, uh, the, the most accessible written treatment is his, but certainly read Ayn Rand's. And as I said, one thing you get from her is just the, she ranges over all aspects, all kinds of concepts, and um, gives all kinds of examples that you won't find anywhere else, not even in Harry's book, uh, and certainly not in Opar, where, you know, again, he's condensing heavily. And um, so I want to give one example she gives that I think is uh, really interesting, fascinating, and clarifying. And it is a concept of consciousness, and it's one of the ones that, to me, like if you had just asked me cold, like how do we form this concept, uh, I would have been pretty much at a loss. So let's just walk through the drum roll concept and. So Ayn Rand talks about and when she's talking about the concept of, or the, the issue of grammar, that they pertain to grammar, which is about how we organize our thoughts and that conjunctions are gonna get relationships between thoughts. And that when we form conjunctions, what we're doing, the distinguishing characteristic is the relationship and what's being omitted are the specific thoughts. And so what and is going to be, and is, um, connecting multiple thoughts in order to economize on words and 
Uh, we'll talk about unit economy in two sections from now, but that's going to be really the fundamental purpose of concepts is condensation so we can hold more in our mind and deal with more of reality. And so it's obviously really valuable then if we can um, reduce the kind of mental uh, units involved in, in a thought. And uh, we'll take an example of that that Ayn Rand gives. So, and as I said, it's integrating several facts into a single thought. And so I forget the exact name she used, but it's like Smith, Jones, and uh, David are walking. So we have Anne there. And what's it doing? Well, it's basically tying together three separate thoughts that you could express without and, which would be, you know, Jones, Jones is walking, Smith is walking. David is walking and it's allowing us to just put that in the form where uh, we're saying the walking applies to all three of them and so that's really all and is doing so Ayn Rand asks like is there an object in reality corresponding to and she says well obviously not but is there a fact corresponding to man she says yes it's the fact that there's three men walking and what and does is it integrates the thought that expresses that fact into a single thought which would otherwise have to be expressed as three distinct thoughts so we can put this into the wider context that we've been talking about just to make sure we're, we're clear on everything and that is that so and that what's going to be the ccd well it's a concept of consciousness so it is the content and actions of consciousness is the ccd the distinguishing characteristic the dc is going to be a relationship between thoughts it's the relationship of combining different facts into a single thought. And what are the omitted measurements? The omitted measurements are the content of the thought. So let's end with this. Um, we talked about at the beginning of concept formation, or rather of measurement omission, why this was important. And the basic idea is that it was the valid it was crucial to the validation of reason but I think that what we've seen is that by walking through this process we're learning more about how to form concepts and how to if we learn a concept from others how to make sure that it is tied to reality and this is going to be hugely valuable because if you if I think about the kind of number one superpower you get from objectivism it's not that like, you know, we have the best regurgitation of Aristotle's, you know, logical fallacies and that you'll be the master of modus ponens or something. Rather that the superpower it gives you and really the superpower of the best thinkers that you'll ever meet is that it is their ability, their clarity of their concepts, the precision with which they use concepts, their rejection of bad concepts and and so this is giving us some of the tools and we're really going to see the practical way to implement this in terms of advice later. Um, it's becoming a master of your concepts. And so I, th I think like that's really the cash value of what we're talking about is that what objectivism gives you with this theory is not just that these are what concepts are, but here's practical advice for how to form them or how to reform them, how to relearn them 
um, and crystallize them in your mind if they're floating. And uh, you know, no other theory actually uh, actually has guidance to offer on how to form and use concepts. That the starting point is the concepts are there, and then we just rearrange them into propositions and into syllogisms. But really, so much of thinking just means getting the right concepts. And so we're starting to see, I think, exactly how objectivism is going to allow us to do that and to do it better. And we'll have more to say about this, but I want your eye in that thread because, again, this is hard material. This is super tricky material, but the payoff is even bigger because the payoff is to make you a much better thinker because you will know how to actually clarify and apply your concepts in a way that you just cannot learn anywhere else. With that, be sure to like this video and hit that bell so you do not miss a single installment. And as always, the best way to stay in touch is to subscribe to my newsletter at donswriting.com. Talk to you next time.